BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources, or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com. That includes reported stories, editorials, regular columns, a fast-growing library of videos, and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. In case you haven't noticed, the lab leak theory of COVID origins is back in vogue here in the U.S. People who in April wouldn't have known a prion from a Prius are suddenly banging on about furin cleavage sites and debating the ethics of -of gain-of-function research and holding forth on the differences in safety protocols between biosafety level 2 and biosafety level 4 labs. Certain members of the American media are self-flagellating or just flagellating other members of the media uh, for allegedly dismissing the possibility that SARS-CoV-2 leaked from a lab at the Wuhan Institute of Virology because they found the politics of those who championed that hypothesis a year ago to be distasteful. And uh, President Biden has even ordered the intelligence community to launch an investigation to determine whether COVID-19 resulted from zoonotic transmission or from a lab leak. This sea change strikes me, at least, as having happened despite there being, well, little by way of any new information or evidence, but quite a bit of new animus toward China. With me to talk about this, on very short notice, I should add, is a guest I had on only a couple of months ago, uh, but in a very, very different times, it feels like, uh, when we talked about China's pandemic response and even talked about COVID origins. Uh, but she is somebody who has had who has the uncanny ability, I think, to explain really complicated issues that straddle science and politics in China to lay people, and it makes her the perfect person on this topic. So we've asked her back. Deborah Seligson served as the State Department's Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing from 2003 to 2007. She pivoted to academia after coming back to the States and finished her Ph.D. at UC San Diego in 2018 and is now Assistant Professor of Political Science at Villanova University in Philadelphia. Debbie, welcome back to Seneca. And uh, so, so soon, <laughs> I think this may be a record for uh, recency. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm thrilled about the reason for the need to re- <laughs> revisit this, but there seems to be that need. Yeah, yeah, the reason's not good, but the urgency is 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 pretty huge indeed. Uh, so let's just jump right in, and let me ask you first, you know, why this lab leak theory has suddenly gained prominence, and specifically among certain scientists, I should hasten to add, by no means all scientists, who had previously actually downplayed its likelihood, uh, a kind of newfound respectability, uh, maybe. What role did certain groups of individuals, uh, people under this acronym of DRASTIC, which... I think we both kind of joked, sounds like it came from Get Smart. Uh, drastic, what, what did that play? Uh, or, or this Nobel biology laureate, uh, David Baltimore, a very reputable scientist, who actually at one point talked about a smoking gun on furin cleavage sites before walking that back. Uh, what is causing this change among the scientific community? So I, I don't think most of the change is among the scientific community. I mean, following the virologists as closely as I can as a complete outsider to this world prior. You know, I actually did know some of these people from back during SARS, but I can't claim to have a compendium of knowledge. But following them now, it doesn't seem like many actually working virologists other than one postdoc at Harvard are actually changing their minds about this or rethinking this in any way. I mean, so you have this one very senior guy, David Baltimore, who makes 
this comment about a smoking gun. Then Christian Anderson, who is described by others as the scientist in this field of his generation at Scripps in, in San Diego, explains why this isn't an unusual furin cleavage site. So there are people who are somewhat tangential to the current, certainly to coronaviruses and to the core of this field who see something and say, that looks weird. And then the folks in the field explain it to them. And in the case of Baltimore, Amy Maxman, who's this wonderful science writer at Nature and actually has a PhD herself, talked to Baltimore and he said, oh, yeah, 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 now I get it kind of thing. So... Uh-huh. So I think at this point, he was, he was saying what all of the virologists have said all along at this point, which is you can't rule out that there might have been a lab leak, but it is the less likely hypothesis, the more likely hypothesis. And none of these are theories. These are all hypotheses. Theories are things like evolution, where we have an explanation for the world. Some idea we don't have a full explanation for that we just feel like testing out, that's a hypothesis. Right, right, right. So what most virologists would say is that this isn't that likely. We can't say no, and that's actually what the WHO team said as well. I think two things that were actually driving this reemergence, maybe three things. The first is, I think people found the language of the WHO report a little bit uncomfortable. They wanted a little more sort of open-ended. That the WHO report was in, in part not clear enough as people really wanted. I mean, they didn't have data on everything. Although if you read the full report, they actually identified enormous caches of data, including a lot of data that hasn't been studied yet and was supposed to be studied in a phase two. But it's it's written in very diplomatic language that is typical of what happens when you're dealing with international relations, but people really don't like it. And so I think... A certain number of scientists, because scientists have been interviewed about signing that science letter saying we need another investigation and saying, oh, I didn't mean that I thought the lab leak was more likely. I just thought that we should do more research, which, of course, we should do more research. So I think there was a lot of sort of not understanding the WHO process from people who aren't involved in it, a little bit of anxiety there. Um, There is an actual feeling that doing this faster rather than slower would be helpful. And I think a lot of people in the scientific community, I mean, at this point, unfortunately, because it's gotten so politicized, they're getting the opposite of what they wanted. But I think what they wanted was to try to hasten the process. Because the reality is like these intermediate species that might be carrying it, they might get sick sometimes and not other times. And so if you wait too long, they're all dead and gone and you can't figure it out. So there is a feeling that there may be stuff that's being hindered. So that's like the first thing. The second thing though, is I think there are a whole bunch of people from the Trump administration that are trying to rehabilitate their images, right? So Robert Redfield, the head of the CDC, who is, did not come into office as a widely respected scientist by any means. No, indeed um, not. He gave an interview with what, I can't remember. You On know, CNN, right? CNN, yeah. you know, where he suddenly was like lably curious. Um, this guy, Matt Pottinger, who was at the NSC, who's made a career of sort of pushing negative tropes about China, seem to be selectively leaking stuff, including a State Department cable that he typified backwards. So a bunch of information appeared in the public sphere that I that isn't really new information at all and is sometimes like a deliberate slant. Then this group got together called Drastic that I really honestly don't know very much about, except that Alina Chan seems to be part of it. Mm-hmm. But it's... She's you know, the uh, Harvard uh, postdoc that you, you mentioned. Right. And yeah. they seem to have been doing internet sleuthing. They're constantly putting stuff out saying, this wasn't revealed. And then the virologists respond, wait a minute, actually, it came out 13 days before the date of your so-called, you know, gotcha moment. 
Um, and things like, I mean, this daily, there are these back and forth where it's like, no, that isn't surprising. No, that actually was out there. Um, and I think they modeled themselves on Bellingcat, which, right. you know, has done so much good work sort of revealing stuff in the in Russia. Um, and so at the moment, people are thinking, oh, these groups are really great. But we have to remember that, you know, this is also WikiLeaks. This is also a lot of other things that a group getting together on the Internet to try to sleuth things out, maybe the one who incorrectly pointed to Richard Jewell in Atlanta, or it may be Bellingcat. You know, you have to take that with some skepticism and check the information. So I, I think it's a confluence of those things. And then the hot take guys got involved. Once it sort of got out there in the ether, you have a couple of people trying to rehabilitate their reputation. I think like Donald G. McNeil Jr. at the New York Times, who, sub, who formerly of the New York Times, who right. suddenly had no platform and nobody had heard from in months. And he puts out a, a medium post and everybody's back paying attention to him, right? right? So you have that. You have this guy, Nicholas Wade, who wrote a racist book and ruined his reputation. And he suddenly writes something. And, and then you get the guys who know nothing about either science or China, right? The Matt Iglesias's, the Nate Silvers, the Jonathan Chates, busy saying, we as the press blew it. And what they like to do is take contrarian stance. So whatever, you know, if there's a way to say, oh, we were all wrong, that's good for page views. And that's good for, and it's their basic intellectual inclination, I think. But the problem is a bunch of these people in this sort of quasi-political sphere seem to think they know a lot about politics that's relevant to this, and they don't know anything about how you manage a WHO-type interaction with a foreign country. They've never worked in any foreign countries. The people who do know, though, and I've heard you argue this, and it makes a whole lot of sense, uh, when it comes to virology, when it comes to actually navigating the institutional and the bureaucratic and the political realities on the ground in China and actually getting stuff done, it's these same scientists who've been working there you know, for, for quite a while who have close ties. I mean, we're talking about the EcoHealth Alliance people, like you know, the, the recently much maligned Peter Daszak or uh, Paul Offit or Angela Rasmussen, people like that, right? I mean, and, and the same goes, I think, for the WHO scientists. I mean, Daszak obviously was working on that as well, but the WHO scientists who have had to actually navigate these uh, difficult political situations, you know, not just in China, but with a lot of other countries, including with the United States. I mean, let's talk a little bit about that, about what those realities are. Right. So countries are sovereign, right? I mean, I teach international relations and we define a nation state by its borders, right? That is the huge transformation that happened, what, four or five hundred years ago in Europe. 1648, yeah. (laughs) So you can't just march into another country and demand information and charge into labs and do a FBI type dragnet investigation. And it doesn't- Not even the USA? It doesn't matter whether it's China or it's Ethiopia or wherever it is around the world. You have to carefully negotiate with these people, the the health authorities, and often the health authorities are doing an internal investigation with the rest of the country. Often the health people want to do this and other people are worried about sovereignty. They're worried about it, the effect on the economy. They're, it, these investigations are always delicate. Um, even response is delicate, negotiating to get experts in to help with response. China no longer needs that, but back during SARS-1, they certainly did, and that was complicated to get all the experts in. And this is what the WHO knows how to, what to do. They have uh, this network of scientists from all over the world that they call in. But the other thing is these virologists who work on things like coronaviruses They've been in and out of China for years. They work with these scientists and they have to. This is not suspicious. You have to go where the pathogens are. If you want to study coronaviruses, you have to go to China. If you want to study Zika, you have to go to Latin America. You have to go to the origin of the disease, right? Right, right. So they have a lot of experience. And, you know, when you get to questions of, 
How is a Chinese Academy of Sciences lab managed? How does it interact with the China CDC? When can you move specimens? When can you not? Where would they hold them? How all this kind of stuff. They're the ones that actually know. (laughs) And what I've also found is they know a lot about China, right? Because they spend time with these scientists outside of Beijing often, right? I mean, they're, the Wuhan Institute of Virology key is in Wuhan, right? So they understand a lot more about how these cities that operate, you know, in the interior without a lot of, I mean, they have huge international trade connections, but they're not very international in their sort of culture or whatever. You know, I heard Paul Offit on TV the other day talking about the nature of the agricultural system around Wuhan and sort of the drainage into Dongting Lake and all this stuff that indicated like, he actually knows, yeah. A deep knowledge of the right. geography of the place. And that's what you're going to need to actually figure out the origins. And the things, the real thing people forget is that the more likely scenario, the natural occurrence scenario is also the more likely to be repeated and is the bigger worry in terms of future pandemics. So actually working on that is really important. And... Even if it was, even if it turns out to have been a lab leak in this case, the more likely transmission next time is zoonotic. And so a zoonotic approach to to the investigation is going to yield important information for the next time. Well, even if it was a lab leak, it would have been zoonotic, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm just saying even if it was just lab leak that was the proximate cause for the outbreak, uh, it was still the zoonotic. Obviously, these are animal samples. Uh, right. Unless it was a bioengineered weapon. Hey, you know, I mean, uh, the AP's Christine Larson and, and uh, Noman Merchant published this really excellent uh, explainer. And they quoted this uh, Seton Hall professor uh, who's been on our show before, a uh, public health and politics professor at Seton Hall named Yanzhou Huang, uh, who's also at the CFR, um, who he actually he was the first guest on our show to talk about COVID way back in March of last year. And he, he said that the problem is when you make the announce that announcement, and he was talking about Biden's call for the investigation in a highly politicized environment, it makes it even less likely that China will cooperate with efforts to find the origins of the virus. I mean, I know you agree that politicization of the origins uh, search and and the revival of the lab leak theory has been a a setback for the actual uh, search for origins. Let's talk about this sort of politicized environment a bit. I just I want to give listeners a sense for for, you know, how deeply politicized it, it is. I mean, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like you know, you'd have to be pretty naive to think that this renewed enthusiasm, uh, especially from the very top, not the very top, I mean, it may not be coming from Joe Biden himself, but, you know, it fits a little too conveniently with this sort of larger framework of this more vigorous, robust strategic competition with China that we've been pursuing. I mean, you look at the IACA, which was just passed by the Senate the other night, right? This uh, Innovation and Competition Act, this $250 billion piece of, okay, China, I see your industrial policy and I'll raise legislation, right? Uh, the amendments that were passed just in the last couple of weeks, right? You have Ernst 1507, which prohibits any federal funding for the Wuhan Institute of Virology, you have Marshall 1973, which is a Senate endorsement of investigation into COVID origins. And you have Paul, not surprisingly, 2003, which will prohibit any NIH or federal agency funding of any gain-of-function research anywhere in China. Okay, so the endorsement of the investigation, that's just pure politics. But some of these things have an actual impact on the science. Like, is it possible, Deborah, for us to just um, expect better results from having no... Uh, f- federal funding for no cooperation with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I mean, that just seems like cutting off our nose to spot our face. Uh, I would agree with that, but I don't agree with all of the way you typified it. So first of all, I mean, I tend to think that um, the administration thought that calling for this 90-day review was a, I think they hoped it was a way to calm the waters. I don't think it worked. But I think that's what they were looking for because they were also extremely transparent about the fact that the um, intelligence communities did not have any um, high level of um, sort of credence in this, um, in, in the origins theories, that it was extremely low level confidence, right? 
um, which means basically we have no idea. And only three agencies even voiced in one way or the other, and two of those agencies said they thought it was more likely to be natural origin. So of the 18 agencies, only one thought it was lab leak. So I think part of what they were trying to do is say, look, we're looking at all the information, everybody calm down and we'll take care of it. I don't think okay, it helps. No, that's fair. That's fair. That's... I don't think it helps because, as I had said on Twitter or somewhere, you know, in 90 days, you're going to get nothing new, right? Because, you know, 14 years to figure out where SARS-CoV-1 came from. Nobody knows where Ebola, measles, polio, smallpox came from. More than 30 years with AIDS, and we only have approximate origin for AIDS. So it's it seems like it's not like, and there's nobody in the intelligence community who knows how to do science. So where are we going to get the answers? And the answers are going to come from somewhere in China, right? And possibly with some additional work in Southeast Asia, because some of the closest relatives to SARS-CoV-2 are actually in Southeast Asia that, that have been found. So there may be a series of links that extend And, you know, we know these coronaviruses extend all the way across Asia and into the Middle East because of MERS. So we need to be looking for coronaviruses in Asia and analyzing coronaviruses in Asia, not so much to figure out where this one came from, but to prevent the next jump. In the last now less than 20 years, we've had three jumps, right? We've had SARS, we've had MERS, and then we've had COVID. And because COVID was transmitted asymptomatically and because it was less lethal, it was much more infectious, right? Right. The diseases that are highly lethal tend to sort of die out because people do literally go hide in their houses and not move. It's when you have a bunch of people moving who are carrying the disease, which is where the asymptomatic transmission became so terrible. But now we know what coronaviruses can do. And the only way we're going to figure out, you know, what's going to happen next and do more to prevent is by studying this better. And what's happened is the WHO team, not only did they write an over 100 page report that I think none of these people have read. And and yeah, there are probably two who have. But the vast majority of people voicing on this really have not. But they also had a phase two plan, right? They had a plan to continue to do research. Their blood samples that are... So there were two things that I thought were particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. One is there was a guy, you know, basically the Chinese do what they always do when they think they have an outbreak. And right, they've had these... They had SARS. They had bird flu. So they have this thing. They run into the market. They close everything down. They spray it down with all of those disinfectants that... I mean, once you smelled them, you it's it's like a memory smell of China, right? That and but there were they were they so this guy collected a bunch of samples, but then they didn't get tested right away. I think that's because they were you know busy dealing with the actual outbreak, and right. so they just didn't have time at the time, and then they were on a you know in a freezer and they didn't think about it. So that's been identified. But the other thing the WHO team was quite intrigued by, thought might be useful, is Chinese blood banks save specimens for two years. Um, I assume this is in case somebody gets a disease from a blood transfusion, they can go back and try to figure out where it came from. But so they save it for two years. If If nobody's asked for it, they toss them. And so one of the things the team suggested was, first of all, keep those. Don't don't do that. But that means they can look throughout Wuhan, Hubei. They can go to Yunnan, see, see, since the original bats that everybody knows about are in Yunnan, not in Hubei. Um, Although Hubei is part of the range of those kinds of um, bats. But so so they can look at humans and see, are we finding earlier indications of something of COVID or of some precursor to COVID, there's a bunch of stuff that could still be done. So there was a whole research plan written. And what's happened since the Biden administration announced their intelligence community review is that the it's all gotten shut down. I mean, the Chinese uh. have just stopped moving. 
And at the same time, what we're also hearing is scientists in China who work on coronavirus-related stuff are just not doing any coronavirus-related research because they're really afraid of the political ramifications. So not only did we cut off the funding to EcoHealth Alliance in the middle of this, and we should be collecting these COVID samples. I mean, I think the big criticism, if you can look at it, is we weren't doing enough, not that right. we weren't were doing too much. So I do think that cutting off these things um, is damaging. I think the administration was much more interested in the economic development portions of the bill and that they're simply willing to use China fear if that's what gets them over the 60-vote threshold. Um, I think that's playing with knives, right? I mean, it's a, right. it's a dangerous strategy. It's one they have chosen. I mean, that's that's an optimistic interpretation. I hope that's true. I hope that's that you're correct, that this is just an instrumental use of it and that this will go away, you know, now that the bill is actually passed and we don't have to frame everything in terms of competition with China. But uh, I still, I, I worry. Um, meanwhile, you know, what I'm curious about is what this whole thing has really looked like from Beijing's perspective. I mean, you talked a little bit about the perspective through the eyes of Chinese immunologists and microbiologists, how, you know, the politics of this have now sort of scared them um, I mean, I think it's kind of easy to imagine, but what about from the perspective of, of the Chinese leadership? I mean, how how are they viewing this this whole thing? And, uh, you know, this is one of the things that reasons I, I'm glad I can talk to you because you can get down into the nitty gritty of, of the science, but also talk about sort of the high level politics of it as a matter of international relations. What's happening from Beijing's perspective? I think they just see no benefit in pursuing this anymore, right? I mean, I think that probably it was the health people really pushing for the WHO to be able to come in because they're they are they're deeply concerned about the health of the Chinese people. That is what most people who were most doctors and scientists who work in the health ministry or in the CDCs, that's their job, right? right. And so bringing in a bunch of experts, many of whom they've known for years and have worked with before, some of whom might bring new perspectives, um, they were very interested in doing that. You know, and I, when I was at the embassy, I often experienced, um, you know, ministries, especially these more technical ministries, wanting um, teams of international experts in essentially to help them with the domestic agenda. Um, you know, I way back in two, in the early 2000s when the when the Environmental Protection Administration wanted to be raised to ministry status, they invited in an OECD team to review the state of China's environmental regulation. And it was obvious they wanted the OECD team to recommend right. that they Leverage. get raised to ministerial status. And of course, the OECD team did because they were all representatives of ministries, right? <laughs> So I think, you know, there are often sort of smart bureaucratic reasons that these Chinese technical organizations look bring in international experts to try to back up something. And I would suspect, although I haven't really talked to them about this, that they're very worried about the level of wildlife farming in China. Mm -hmm. Right. That mm -hmm. everybody thinks the most likely infection route is through this enormous industry of farming wildlife for food and the poor conditions in these places. It's a big but, industry. I think you put a number on it once, $70 billion. Is that's that what right? I saw in the press, that it's a $70 billion industry. And, you know, China also has a big fur industry. And if you recall, the Danish minks caught COVID from Danish people. You can imagine it going the other way. Um, so maybe, so there's wildlife for meat. There's wildlife for fur. There's also just farming. Animal husbandry in China just increases, you know, year after year as people eat more meat. So there's a lot of human-animal interaction in China, which makes it a very high risk for zoonosis. And there's a long history now of the health ministry wanting to see 
better regulation of that and having to push the Ministry of Agriculture pretty hard. Right. right? That's what of... happened in bird flu. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't want to see calls happen across the entire duck and chicken uh, population. Right. Right. And they are going to want to protect all the farmers who have now turned to wildlife as a way to make money as their traditional routes to making money are not getting them much anymore. I mean, um, rural welfare is one of these things that the Chinese government worries about because, of course, they came to power um, through a rural revolution and they don't want another one. So the Ministry of Agriculture's number one job is to keep the farmers sort of calm and not dangerous. So so they don't want to see disruption to economic systems, right? So Ministry of Health, I think, has long been worried about zoonotic disease in China. That's why we have all these things like the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I mean, that's Chinese Academy of Sciences, but other scientists really wear it. Now, what happens when suddenly they get accused of a lab leak? They don't have much ability within the Chinese system to, or even, you know, it suddenly, everybody's like, why are you arguing for these people to come in? They're just causing trouble and they're accusing you of all kinds of nefarious stuff. And now you basically have no advocate left for being more open internationally because the people who would have been the advocates are now, you know, the ones who are finding themselves being taken aim of. And so I just think that, At this moment, I would be surprised if there's any real advocate for cooperation. What a pity that is. So, Deb, two questions for you then. You know, what, first of all, is if if our priority, if our priority is right now still on on really getting a better picture of the origins, what's the right approach to elicit more cooperation from Beijing? And then a bigger question is, is what should our priority with China be? I mean... You know, it might be continuing pushing harder on the search for natural origins, or it might be something else entirely that, I, as I suspected, it is. What is the right approach to elicit more cooperation? And then what should our actual priority be? So the only way we're going to get more cooperation on natural origins is to, for everybody to calm down. I mean, you know, we would need a much quieter environment in which, China, which, in which scientists around the world could do their work. Uh, and some, as I say, not all of that work will be in China. But at this point, it, it becomes scary. I suspect it's not just scary in China. It's scary anywhere for a scientist to say, look, um, my country is the origin of this thing, right? Right, right. So... I don't know. Everybody uh, at some point, at least in the United States, everybody will get distracted by something else and maybe (laughs) we'll move on. And then maybe slowly this can move. But as I say, the reason to search for origins is really to prepare for the next pandemic. Right. And it's just one piece of pandemic preparedness. And that is one of the things that we should be working on with China. So when you say, what should we be doing with China? I think the most urgent is to work with them on vaccines and on vaccinating the world. So we have 7.8 billion people in the world now. I Googled it last night. I mean, I was using the number seven, but apparently we're closer to 8 billion. And by the time we vaccinate everybody, we will have more than 8 billion people in the world. And... You know, the U.S. has promised 500 million doses next year. So 500 million doses is is 250 million people, right? Right. The Indians, um, before their horrendous second wave, promised a billion next year. Even that, that's 500 million people, right? And... A lot of, you know, there's huge pushback in India of what are you doing sending this stuff overseas? Please vaccinate everyone in our own country. Right. So the administration is quoted yesterday saying they still think India will live up to that. I don't know. But even if they did, we're only at 750 million people from the U.S. and India. Um, There is no way that we vaccinate the world unless we're also using vaccines from places like China. 
And Russia, that Russian very, right. very, very So effective the Russian vaccine. vaccine is very good. They've had a lot of production problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and yeah, one of the interesting questions would be, why don't they get with some Chinese vaccine makers to actually solve their production problems? <laughs> I don't, so this is the thing. China has two vaccines that are now approved by the World Health Organization. They have uh, both the Sinovac and the Sinopharm vaccines now have the emergency use authorization. So the WHO was satisfied with their data. Um, there are wildly differing reports on effectiveness in the field. Right, you know, right, right. Bahrain is not very happy and they're giving everybody a Pfizer booster. On the other hand, there was this experiment in with vaccinating a whole city in Brazil and pretty much wiping it out in that town using Sinovac. And of course, some of the really good Sinovac data did come from Brazil. So it's possible that that vaccine works better on the Brazilian, you know, the P1, or I think is the Brazilian variant, than on some of the other variants. You know, it may be that some of these vaccines work better in certain countries than in others depending on what's going on or whatever. My feeling is we need to get the best scientists together to figure out what is working, what isn't working with the Chinese vaccine. And if we can make it a little better, work with them to actually improve these vaccines, plural. They have a whole bunch of them. And if, you know, giving one of theirs and then following it up with an mRNA would work better, that might actually increase everybody's access. You know, I, my concern is we need absolutely everything. And this is additive. It's not competitive, right? right. We should be working together. And if in the height of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union could first cooperate on testing the polio vaccine. The Sabin vaccine was developed in the U.S. and tested in the Soviet Union in the 1950s and then used in the U.S. If then we could work together to eradicate smallpox off the face of the planet, why can't we see that cooperating with China is the obvious thing we have to do with vaccines? And I am mystified that in the climate change arena, Secretary Kerry like recognizes this. The administration certainly leaves him to talk about climate as something that we all need to work on together and collaboratively and he has friendly meetings. And yet we have these constant discussions in the vaccine space where the administration is talking about working with India, Japan, Australia, the Quad, to somehow compete with China for vaccine diplomacy. And it's like, we need it all. So the second thing we do need to work on is preventing the next pandemic. That's right. right. A lot of that work has to be done in the United States, right? Um, We had a pandemic preparedness unit at the NSC. We got rid of that. We had this... um, global network that we called the global disease detection network. And then I think later was called the emerging infections where we had, I think nine different offices around the world or something, most of which were shut down by Trump. So we need to staff up and it's not just a question of China. It's a question of lots of places, right? Because we don't know where the next pandemic is coming from. So a lot of it is global work, but we do know that China is one of the places with a large number of humans and animals in close proximity. So it is one of the places and not by no means the only one where you have a significant risk of zoonotic disease, right? That spillover is more likely because there's so many humans and animals interacting on a regular basis. And we know these coronaviruses are all over the place in South and Central China. So we do need to be working with them. And I think we need to be working with them under the auspices of the WHO. That's the way we've worked with them most successfully in the past. This incredible influenza surveillance program that we have. It's a global surveillance program, but China is like the critical part of it in terms of figuring out each year's flu shot. That surveillance program was built up in China with U.S. and Japanese bilateral aid 
And the two countries were originally kind of working separately. And then they, I mean, both helping the Chinese send samples to the WHO. And by the way, to the WHO actually meant to CDC Atlanta because it was a WHO cooperating lab. But then they realized that was sort of complicated. So they got it more directly under WHO. But the result of that was that they worked with the Chinese not only to increase the number of sentinel surveillance sites from in the tens to in the thousands over sort of the 15 years from the 90s through the mid-aughts, or no, all the way up to about 2010, I would say. But they also got the Chinese laboratory um, capacity built, and this is the CDC lab, I believe, in Beijing, so that it's now a WHO coordinating facility so that the Chinese can actually um, do all of the testing themselves. And this has been incredibly effective. And I would hope that kind of thing is a model for what we need to be doing on coronaviruses. And we're nowhere near that, you know. I mean, so if we go back to the EcoHealth Alliance story, I think what the virologists would say is the problem is they weren't collecting enough samples. Um, the stuff that uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology has just published was based on stuff that was collected a couple years ago, right? There isn't the kind of sample collection that you have on flu where there's a ton done every single year. Right. It's the, so, you know, it's the, it's the difference between public health and academic research that actually at the moment, this is all kind of project based and it's specific academic sort of research projects rather than sort of trying to have widespread surveillance. And if we're thinking there are a lot more of these, I wonder, and I am not a public health specialist, so other people may tell you I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me we need to be talking with the Chinese about how to make this kind of stuff more regular. And we're only going to be able to do that in an atmosphere where there's greater trust. And I think it's also only going to work if we acknowledge and express respect for the role the WHO plays in making it possible for countries to provide this information, that there's less of a sovereignty hit, there's less concern about sort of looking like you're simply doing another country's work when you work through an international organization that you're a member of. And so I think there's good work to be done there. I also think there need to be some changes to the international health regulations that uh, some of which I think China will probably oppose, but I think are necessary. It's pretty, so neither SARS or COVID were reported according to the way they should be reported under international health regulations, right? Mm -hmm. So at the time there was of SARS, there was no provision for emerging infections. Now, at various times, other countries had said, we have something, we don't know what it is, please come help us. So often they were actually, you know, WHO or um, international health efforts were involved, but there was no requirement. So, um, but that isn't why the Chinese didn't report it because they had never, I mean, Beijing didn't seem to know. It was like floating around in Guangdong and Guangdong was busy covering it up, right? Right. So they, so the way WHO heard about it was through a text message, right, from a cell phone. <laughs> Some person just texted them and told them. Um, not a, I mean... Not and a reliable then, transmission mechanism. Well, but I think we need to change the regs to say anybody can report to WHO. Because then with COVID, it was even weirder in some ways. Um, so by COVID, of course, there was a requirement to report emerging infections. But the way the WHO found out was a posting on a Wuhan City website. Right. And I think... We have to say that subnational governments, that other people can report information to WHO, individual scientists, because it doesn't work to only have country transmission. And 
this isn't a China-only problem. There have been other outbreaks. There have been whole outbreaks that have never been acknowledged to WHO. Mm. Where, because what the thing that you have to remember is publicly announcing a disease outbreak means you're inviting an economic hit. Right, People are going to stop traveling there. If you have a tourism industry, it's going to be immediately hit. If you have trade, it may also be hit because you know your buyers don't show up. All kinds of things happen. And so even if it's not massive lockdown, countries really worry, no matter what the disease is, is it a cholera, is it whatever, that they're going to take a hit. And so the gamble that many countries take and that Guangdong province took with SARS is... If we cover it up and get it under control, nobody will ever have to know. That's right. That's and right. bad gamble. Well, sometimes it works, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still. I mean, I mean it's it's the stakes are way too high to take. The that. stakes are too yeah. high, but the way to deal with that is to say anybody can report to WHO. That's right. I mean, certainly at a subnational level. I mean, maybe not any schmuck on the street, but uh, but yeah. I mean, any doctor, I mean, any qualified physician should be able. To honestly, I think SARS was some schmuck on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, apologies to all schmucks out there, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, just some guy, right? Right, just some guy. Some guy who had a friend at the WHO Beijing office. Maybe it was a doctor, or maybe it was someone else, because those rumors were on everybody's phone. And in fact, that SARS outbreak in. Guangdong did die out because of those cell phone rumors, right? Right. They they were not incorrect. The problem is by the time it did it, it seeded another outbreak in Beijing and one in Shanxi province, right? As well as in Toronto and Vietnam and whatever. Right. In Hong Kong, and right? Yeah. So, so the myth is that, especially with a respiratory infection, that you can keep it within one location because we are all too interconnected. And that's also why this vaccinating the world matters. I mean, I think there are a lot of people in the U.S. who think, well, I don't travel. And it's like, no, any disease is going to come to you. That's right. In fact, diseases came to the United States sooner than we had originally thought. Uh, Just yesterday, uh, that would be June 10th, they were recording, uh, Nature Communications published this multi-author paper uh, by researchers at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center. So, uh, it looked at nasopharyngeal swabs that were taken in the first 10 weeks of 2020. Uh, so that would be January to early March uh, of patients in New York City who had this uh, undiagnosed respiratory ailment. It didn't test positive for any known pathogens back then, uh, but it now shows uh, it, I don't know how to read this paper exactly, but it seems like uh, very strong evidence that this was uh, SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, uh, I think they're saying it was definitely in New York by the end of January. You right. know, And there had been similar work at the University of Washington looking at their flu samples, which I think in Washington State gets the date all the way back to December sometime. December, right, right, right. So, what what, what does mean, that tell us? I mean, how is this significant? Does it just tell us, look, these things travel a lot faster than anyone, yeah. And especially if it's got asymptomatic transmission, yeah, yeah. that it, the cat's going to be out of the bag before you know it. So the only way to deal with these things is to work together and to think globally because you're not going to hold them in one country. Um, it, it does, I mean, we clearly know with something as terrible as COVID, we do need to have you know travel restrictions and close it down. But that isn't the same as thinking you're ever going to be able to restrict these things to one place because this was seeded before anybody knew what was going on. But I think the other thing it shows us is even after the genome was identified, right, because the Chinese published the genome on January 11th, everybody knows exactly what this disease was, right? Even after that, it was very hard for doctors to identify it, spot it, and realize what they were dealing with. So one of the things the, um, some of the researchers talk about is that um, you shouldn't be using travel to the place as part of the case definition right? because you just have no idea You'll who's miss getting too much. exposed. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. miss too much. So I think that's a huge medical lesson that I hope people have taken from this. So back then, when we were only able to get tests if we had demonstrable, you know, travel to infect areas of infection, yeah, that was right. that was folly. Yeah. But the other thing is, when you have a disease like COVID that is generally most severe in the elderly population, 
when you're dealing with the first part of that exponential curve, you know how an exponential curve kind of rides flat for a while before it tips sure. upward? It's going to look like pneumonia, right? It's not going to be that surprising. And I thought one of the most telling interviews I heard was with a funeral director in New Rochelle, New York. You'll recall that the New York epidemic was actually first identified in New Rochelle and not in the city. And then it turned out that everybody in the city had already had it and like half my friends and relations did. Um, But the... He was noticing, you know, just more deaths at the nursing homes that were part of the community he served. And they were, you know, they were pneumonia-like deaths. And it's like, oh, it ticked up. And at first you think, oh, bad flu season, right? And it's like only later it's like, oh, that was a different disease. But the numbers have to get pretty high before you start seeing a lot of younger people and you realize it's a problem. So it looks like in each and every one of these places, from Wuhan to New York to Seattle to Milan, it takes more than a month for people to notice. Now, one of the big tragedies that you can see in the WHO report is that the data from Wuhan disappeared exactly at that moment when the curve started to tip upward. Hmm. That that period from the 10th to the 20th of January, when there was no data coming out of Wuhan, was actually a period when the number of cases was growing exponentially in at a very fast rate, right? Possibly the, the worst possible time for, for China to try to, to disguise or to, to obscure that kind of data. Right? Or, so, I mean, that's been the theory. I keep trying to figure out why they would be hiding it after they acknowledge it to the WHO, after George Gao is on the phone with Robert Redfield. Um, the, the claim has been that it's because there was a provincial people's congress in Hubei, but i don't know that the national government cares that much about how fancy a provincial people's congress is so i'm a little bit confused and i wonder if they had some testing problems because the data disappears on the date they publish the genome so that would be the time when they might have shifted from a case definition based on symptoms to a case definition based on based a on PCR actual, test. Right, 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 right. And I Had don't they developed know. a PCR test like within days after sequencing well, the genome, though? They certainly claimed they had by the 21st, I think. Right, but um, that's still, that's 11 days after the publication of the yeah, genome. Yeah, but right? I wonder whether they had something earlier. Maybe, the, yeah. I don't Maybe. know. I just... The provincial. I let me ask you: Does the provincial people's congress story make sense? It, no, I mean it. it it's, I mean it makes sense at a, a local level. I mean it's possible at a provincial level, but you know by then the 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 China CDC had this. I mean, and they had already published it. It was out. There was no, there would have been no point. It's yeah. it's a mystery to me still. I, I yeah. I so I tend to wonder if there weren't just mistakes, a whole bunch of mistakes that were creating data battle, bottlenecks. But I don't know. Um, and I'll so be Deb, a- we're, I know I, I've got to be mindful of your time here. I know you need to get out of here, but I want to do one quick thing before we go to recommendations, which is you know pre-recommend a couple of of, of pieces that you think are scientifically literate and politically sensitive and just sort of get it. You know, good explainers for the Seneca listenership uh, that would be sort of pitched to their level of, of, of knowledge and intelligence. I mean, I think I've already mentioned the AP explainer of Christina Larson and uh, Nomad Merchant. There are some other pieces. You mentioned uh, Amy Maxman's pieces in Nature, which are very uh, accessible, too, I found. Uh, there are a couple others that I think maybe you could come up with. Right. So the thing about Amy Maxman is she is a PhD, but she's writing as a science writer rather right, than right. as a... Um, and Nature has these articles. I always have to like help my students understand the difference between the Nature news articles and the actual peer-reviewed stuff. Right. These right. are news articles. News and articles, her stuff absolutely. explains things very well. And then the other one I really liked was a piece by Michael Hiltzik in the... Los Angeles Times. That was great. I read that, that one too. That was that really I thought good. was good. Super solid. I mean, the truth is, a lot 
a lot of what I get, I follow, um, you know, people on Twitter, um, all the, it seems to jump around which virologists are busy tweeting about this at the moment. Um, Tag team. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Angela Rasmussen is really good. This guy, Stephen Goldstein yeah, is Goldstein's really Julian. helpful. Um, Christian Anderson has deleted his Twitter account, which I wonder if he wasn't just getting way too much attack for being a true scientist. Because what happened to him was, um, you know, there in the Fauci emails, he had early on, before he'd looked at it, said, yeah, there's something weird here. I am wondering if there's some sort of human intervention. And then, you know, he continued to study it. And a month later, they published the the important Nature article that's been cited thousands and thousands of times, where they said that the likelihood was that it was naturally arising. Um, I did want to point out the the data, the sort of the the circumstantial evidence for natural um, source has actually increased over time. There was a paper that came out, I think, just last week or so um, about the multiple markets where SARS-CoV-2 sort of arose in Wuhan. And if it were coming through this wild animal trade where the, you know, the uh, an, a, animals sense. with this disease were right. going to different markets, that As would make do. total sense, right? right, right? right, right. So um, at any rate, so yeah, he used to be really useful and then he disappeared because um, Twitter is a terrible place. Yeah, but um, I think the, these these uh, sources, I mean, I don't want to, yeah, send everyone just looking at accounts on Twitter, but I think the Hiltzik article, um, the stuff by Amy Maxman, I mean, that's a really great place to, to sort of get your yeah. bearings, get your grounding in this. And those have been very, very helpful to me. Debbie, I, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to talk with me about this. I am super, super grateful. Um, and especially for doing it on such short notice. So thanks so much. Well, we were going to give a recommendation, though. We will, yeah. But let's move on okay. to recommendations right now. Uh, okay. Uh, this is, you know, it's the show's tradition. But I got to first remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca, with China Stories, with the China and Africa podcast, you can learn Chinese, new voices, strangers in China, uh, all the shows in our network. The best way to show your support is... I mean, because these things cost money, after all. It's to become a subscriber to SubChina Access. You know, not only get our, our daily newsletter, but, I mean, as I've been saying, we're doing events again very soon. Uh, and you get free admission to our live podcasts and steeply discounted admission to our events. Uh, and plus, you get the secret RSS feed that lets you listen to Seneca on Monday afternoons, U.S. time, rather than waiting until Thursday. So sign up, show your support. We look forward to, to having you join our family. Okay, on to recommendations. Debbie, what you got for us? So I want to recommend This Week in Virology. Sorry, I <laughs> thought you were like signing off. So no, no, no. I was no, like, no, wait, no. wait, wait. I have to tell people about This Week in Virology, which um, if you really care about this, there is a podcast for you. And episodes 760 and 762 really give you everything you need to know about what the WHO thinks, about um, where the science is, really useful. Um, this is not a covid podcast. They're up to over 700 episodes. This is a bunch of virologists that get together and talk about all kinds of subjects. And some of the other ones are super interesting too. And some of the other ones, I don't know, but, um, I, and they're, and it's a very homey podcast. They always start by discussing what the weather is like where they are, <laughs> um, which they often have some people in New York and some in New Jersey. So that's a little bit ridiculous, yeah, but anyway, yeah. Um, their, their science is great. They make a huge effort to explain it to non-scientists. And so I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a quick plug. Uh, it's a science of, uh, immunology and, and, uh, microbiology related, uh, plug as well. It's for a Senate candidate in the state of North Carolina, Dr. Richard Watkins, who is a PhD from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, in um, microbiology and immunology. And, you know, virology is a subfield of, of microbiology. So he he's, uh, studies viral, vi- viruses. He's worked on, on, on coronaviruses especially. So a uh, brilliant guy, really earnest and uh, gr- great guy. He's an African-American guy, grew up in, uh, in 
here in, in North Carolina in uh, in Greensboro and went to his undergraduate at, at, in Fayetteville. Um, really progressive and uh, solid. I'm going to be handing out literature for him this weekend and I've uh, been going to some of his campaign stuff. And I, I like the guy. He's really good. Uh, talked to him a lot about China issues and he is not on board with this you know, uh, sort of organizing our society around hostility toward China. So, uh, good guy. Um, uh, but my real recommendation is for uh, season four of the show Fargo. I don't, I don't know if you've seen it or the Coen Brothers uh, film by that name. But it, it's kind of a black comedy crime drama thing. It's it's irrespective of where it's set because it's an anthology thing. So it's set you know different times, different places. But there's always at least one character with that goofy sort of nor- northern Midwestern like Minnesotan or or, uh, or you know Fargo North Dakotan accent where they say yeah you betcha and stuff like that all the time. Uh, this one this time there is one who's just sort of this quite crazy kooky sinister nurse um anyway it's really good so far it's on hulu which i had discontinued for some time but i got signed back on to you know to watch uh the latest season of of uh handmaid's tale but it's actually got a surprisingly amount a good amount of of worthwhile uh bingeable tv from the sublime to the dumb and i need dumb a lot i need dumb just to take my mind off of the hell that is my uh child of divorce life right now of you know China and the United States, my my parent civilizations now fighting so badly. Uh, anyway, it's hard. I tell you, it is really hard to come up with recommendations when you have to do it every week. But uh, Hulu this this week's been helping me out, and so have you been, Deb, because you've been uh, giving me all sorts of great stuff to read, and uh, it's been just a, a real pleasure watching you fight the good fight out there on social media and on various list serves. So, congrats, Deb. Well, thanks. Lovely to talk to you. As always, as always. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.